<laughs> a lot of kids. Aren't you glad you're not downstairs? Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Revelation chapter 1. Our title today is The Perfect Shepherd Elder. Now just heads up, when we, when we get into November, we're going to spend three weeks in the book of Colossians, and we're going to specifically look at Colossians 3. So I'll let you know that now, so you can be reading Colossians 3 and preparing uh, for that time in November. Next week we'll be in Psalm 119 in the first eight verses, so you can be prepared for that next week. Today we're wrapping up a series titled Shepherds of the Flock. This, I believe, is the seventh sermon in this series. This has been a series that has focused on elders within the church. And in this time, we have learned that elders are given to the church in order to lead and teach the word of God. They are to protect the church from false teachers. They are to be men who love the church, men of godliness, men who actively train others in godliness. They are to be honored within the church and carefully appointed. And if you want to look back at that, all those sermons are online. In essence, elders are meant to represent Jesus within the church. And so we spent... Uh, quite a few weeks looking at that, and, and we try to take each week and point that towards Christ, but we want to make sure that as we end this series, we, we do clearly focus on Jesus Christ, because while we do have elders within the church, they are but mere men, and as men, no elder is perfect. No elder knows how to respond to every situation perfectly. No elder perfectly reads the Bible, perfectly prays, and perfectly leads us to Jesus at all times, but... There is a perfect shepherding elder, and that elder is Jesus Christ. And so that's how we're going to end this series, by just clearly looking at Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, because in this passage, we have a vision of the risen Jesus Christ who is given to the church that the church would persevere, stand firm in the faith, and love God. And so I encourage you to go ahead and have your Bibles there. And we're going to uh, stand, in fact, I'll go ahead and invite you, let's stand and read Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. If you have any questions as we go throughout the sermon today, uh, you can feel free to text them. The number's up on the screen, and it's also in your bulletin. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a, white, and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he, heard, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. 
those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this vision that you've given us in Revelation 1. This vision of your son, Jesus, reigning on high. That God, he is the radiance of your glory. He reigns supreme over all of creation. And he is with the church. God, may we have comfort from this. May this passage strengthen our faith that we would persevere in the faith. God, convict us in areas that in areas of sin within our life, in areas where we have been disobedient, in areas where we are not living as though you are king. God, give us clarity today of who you are and who you've called us to be. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this time that we have to look at your word. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to go through this passage in, in kind of three blocks. There's a vision, there's a response, and there's an interpretation. And so we're going to begin by looking at uh, the glorious vision that we have. And what we have here is a vision of Jesus. The symbols that John uses to describe Jesus are not what he actually physically looks like as he sits at the right hand of the Father. So this isn't meant to be a description. So then we'd sit, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. But it's it's rather letting us know what he is like, who he is, how he functions. So what we want to do is I'm going to pull a couple truths from this passage, but I want to be careful that we don't dissect the whole passage. If we had a beautiful painting and we analyze every single brushstroke of the painting, the danger is we lose sight of the painting. And so John wants us to see the vision, and while we could dissect more than what we do today, I simply want to bring us to, as John is describing Jesus to us, I want us to see that vision and what, that effect, what the effect of that is to be upon us today. So number one, Jesus is the warrior king. If you look in verse 13, he says, there is one like the son of man. Now the phrase comes from Daniel chapter 7. Now, there in Daniel 7, Daniel sees this great vision. It's an amazing vision. It's an amazing vision that affected um, all of Israel as they waited for the return of Christ. And there we have, we have four beasts that rise up. And the four beasts are representing the nations that rebel against the kingdom of God. And then we're told that there is a fiery throne and that one who sits on it is the Ancient of Days, referring to the Father. And he's dressed all in white. And the fourth beast is slain before him. And then we have one like the son of man who comes up to the ancient of days. And the ancient of days gives the son of man all rule over all people, all nations, and all languages. So we have here a king who's going to reign over everything. And then we're asked, how long will he reign? And we're told his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the vision that Israel has as they're in captivity is that one day there's a king and he's going to deliver us and he's going to reign on high above everything and his kingdom will never end. And revelation comes and John says that king is Jesus. And he came 
and died at the cross, and he rose again, and he's now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the long-awaited cosmic king who rules all nations, all peoples, all languages. In verse 16, we see that there's a sharp, two-edged sword coming from his mouth. What do we know about God's word? We know that he's the one who created all of the universe with mere words, that he sustains all of creation with words, that his words have so much power and authority that they're able to conquer all who oppose him just with his words. In fact, in Revelation 19, which we're not going to look at today, but But we see Jesus, and before Jesus is all the armies of the world, showing the spiritual battle that will take place. And we see with just mere words, he defeats them. There's no battle. He has the power and authority to conquer all. In fact, we're told in verse 15 that his words are so powerful that they're compared to the roar of many waters. It's like standing next to Niagara Falls, just hearing the roar of his voice. Now think about that. That's a pretty loud voice, isn't it? Uh, my wife and I and the kids, we were in South Bend, Indiana. We used to live in Michigan. South Bend was just south of us. And we loved to go to a zoo that was there. And it was a small zoo, but it was a really pretty cool zoo. And you could get really close to the lions, kind of scarily too close. Like, you're like, oh, maybe this small zoo should actually put a little bit bigger fence. But they were in a steel cage, and we were only about four feet away from them, maybe. And... Uh, so we always went there to the lions, and we love looking at the lions, and so we go, we look at them, and we're like, oh, this is awesome, and then we start looking at the maps, and we're looking at where we're going to go next within the zoo, and then all of a sudden, with our, with our heads turned, one of the lions just roars, I mean, just lets out a huge roar, we all jump, everyone within about 20, 30 feet jumps, we all turn, chills are going down all of our backs, and it's not even that big of a lion. It's just one of the lions here, and he just roars, and we all jump. When uh, this is the words of Jesus, they're more powerful than the roar of any lion. And when he roars, the sound of many waters sends chills down the back. This is the one that we serve. This is our king. This is the unconquerable king. None can oppose him with his mere words. He has the power and authority to overcome any. So that's the first thing we see. The second one is what we see Jesus is the glory of God. Look at verse 16. We see that his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. Now, John doesn't know about Washington. And he doesn't know about cloudy days like this. And that we don't really know a lot about sun shining in full strength, especially in the next six months. We're not going to see that a whole lot. I think we had a glimpse of it yesterday. Um, But what he's comparing, he's saying... Jesus' face is like the noonday sun when you're in the desert. It's bright, it's brilliant, it's beautiful, it's holy, it's glorious. And this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. In Hebrews, the author says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So, so what John is saying, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, to see Jesus is to see God, because Jesus is the glory of God. When the Father reveals himself, he reveals himself through Jesus Christ. So we have a king, an unconquerable king. He's the glory of God. And we could go more into the vision. We could look at how he's a priest, who's our high priest. There's much more we could say, but we at least see this, that he's a king, he's an unconquerable king, who is the very glory of God. 
Listen to how uh, William Hendrickson, he wrote a commentary on Revelation. This is how he describes this passage. He says, the entire description must be taken as one whole and interpreted as such. Let us try to see it that way. Notice that the Son of Man is here pictured as clothed with power and majesty, with awe and terror. The long royal robe, the golden belt buckled at the breast, the hair so glistening, white that like snow on which the sun is shining, it hurts the eye. Those eyes flashing fire, eyes which read every heart and penetrate every hidden corner. Those feet glowing in order to trample down the wicked. That loud reverberating voice like the mighty breakers booming against the rocky shores of Patmos. That sharp, long, heavy great sword with two biting edges. That entire appearance as the sun shines in its power too intense for human eyes to stare at. The point is this is our king. This is our Savior. This is the one who right now sits at the right hand of the Father. John is bringing into clarity the king that we see, that we serve. And John was told to write this down. I just want to pause for a second. Just, just think about that. He says, I want you to write it down so that we, the church, would read and through the reading of the word understand who Jesus is, how he reigns, and that he is the very glory of God. Listen, God reveals himself through his word. Yes, we can say he reveals himself in general revelation too, and that's true, but specifically, he reveals himself through his word, and when the Father reveals himself, he reveals himself through Jesus, because in Jesus we see the Father. If it was not for the word, we would not know Jesus. We would not know his strength, his glory, his purity, his kingliness, his justice, his power, his priestly role. We would know none of that apart from the word. So I just want to encourage us, let us be diligent students of the word. God has given us his word that we would know him, that we would understand him, that we would know our king. Look, we have Bible reading plans on the ministries table out there. We encourage the reading of the Bible. We're actually going to talk about the reading of the Bible later again in this sermon. But I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, wherever reading plan you're in, or whatever reading plan you're not in, know that God reveals himself through the word. And it's through the word you're going to understand God. We're going to come back to that later. So that's, that's the first part. We have this glorious vision. The second part is we have this fearful response. Look at what John does. Verse 17. He falls down as though dead. Yeah? That sounds about right. I mean, think about that. What else would you do? You just saw the shining brilliance of the, of the glory of God. He falls down. In fact, this is similar if you go back to Daniel chapter 8 or Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel has visions and he sees what is called one, uh, or the appearance of a man, most likely referring to Jesus, what does Daniel do? He falls down. If you remember, when Israel goes to Mount Sinai and they're before the mountain and God comes down upon the mountain, clouds cover the mountain, there's thunder and lightning and they hear the booming voice of God coming. What does Israel then do to Moses? They say this in Exodus 20, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They see the glory of God coming upon a mountain, and the mountain shakes. Now just think about this. 
We're near. You're standing at it. Maybe you're there. You're up on paradise. You're like, oh, this is a beautiful day. Glory of God comes down. The entire mountain begins to shake. There's fear that's going through the Israelites. This is a God like none other. When you come face to face with the roaring lion, you don't run. You fall. Your strength leaves you at that moment. That's, that's what we're seeing here. John's body has melted in the presence of the one who shines more brilliant than the sun. But is this the point? Is this the point that, that John is going to give us this vision that we would all be frightened of our, of our Savior, of our King, of our High Priest, of the glory of God? Are we going to be frightened that we don't want to come near Him? Let me give an illustration. Many of you know C.S. Lewis. He wrote uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Here's a quote from him. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point. That's right, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver, bringing his paw on the table with a crash that made all the cups and saucers rattle. And so you shall. When we come to this passage, let us be reminded of who God is. I think if we're not careful, if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, if you've read the Bible, been within church, it's easy to kind of get comfortable with the message. It's easy to just read Revelation 1 and go, that's nice, let's just keep going and turn the page and we begin to fail to remember who the God of the Bible actually is. I mean, think about this. When someone says, who is Jesus, what's the picture that comes to your mind? Is it something like Revelation 1, or is it maybe some white man with long brown hair flowing, with children all around him, kind of frolicking, possibly slightly effeminate? Now, there's some truth in that picture, right? But is that the only picture that we have? A lot of times if we go to your houses, maybe you have these pictures. I don't necessarily recommend them, but we have pictures of Jesus. What do they look like? Are they the God of the Bible? Is is this what we have, this description? So let us remember, when we come to God's word, we're seeing who God is. With words, he gives life. With words, he parts the Red Sea. With words, he sustains every molecule in the universe. He is infinitely strong, and his authority has no limits. When he speaks, literally, universes just appear. We should tremble in his presence. But at the same time, we know he's good. We know the Father sends the Son, that he would die on the cross for us that we can be forgiven and be part of his family, and that we can run to him like children, that we can pray to him, and he loves to hear our voice. He is the one who comforts us and encourages us, gives us his spirit to dwell within us. In fact, even here in the text, we have now the hands of Jesus coming and touching John and saying, fear not. 
So we do have this God who we should tremble before, but just like Peter says, oh, I do want to see him, even if I'm frightened at that point. It's a trembling that does not cause us to run away, but it's a trembling that causes us to gravitate towards him in awe and wonder. And we run to him like children, but yet there's also this reverence that this is God. The one who creates all things, the cosmic king, the one who with a tongue can defeat all enemies. And so what do we do? If the idea is not that we're to run in fear, a trembling, frightening fear that does not draw us to him, if that's not the case, what are we to do? And so for that, we have the awesome interpretation that he gives us. And so we're going to see three things in verses 17 through 20. Number one, we see Jesus is the eternal God. Look what he says. Jesus lays his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. What does that mean? Well, if we go back to verse 8 in Revelation 1, the Father says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So what we have is Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. The Father saying, I am the first and the last. What we see is that the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. The King that we have is not some sub-God. He's not a little God. He's not a little king over a small part of the universe. He's not created for this special power, this special position. But He is God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father who reigns in high. In 14, verse 14, we see that he has white hair. And in Daniel chapter 7, if we were to read that passage of the Ancient of Days describing the Father, we are told that the Ancient of Days has hair that is pure wool. So the Son has hair like wool, like snow. The Ancient of Days has hair like the pure wool. Do you see, again, Jesus is the glory of God. To look at Jesus is to see the Father. The point is Our king is God. This is our king. This is the God that we serve. This is the one we come. This is the one who we will look in a few moments, walks amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches. It is not some sub-God, some little God. It is God himself who walks with us. Number two, we see Jesus is the eternal conquering king with all authority. Look at verse 18. The next thing he says is, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I want you to notice three words. Living, died, alive. What is that? Is that not the gospel? We have the living one, the eternal one, the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the one who has eternally existed with the Father. And he lives, but yet he died because we know he came to earth as a man, like you and me, that he would live and die on a cross that we who believe in him would be forgiven, would be adopted into his family. But did he stay dead? No, he he rose and he's alive. He conquered sin, death, and Satan, which is why we have the next line. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus possesses the keys of death and Hades. Now, to have the keys of something is to possess it and to have authority over it. So, as an example, most of you probably have keys in your pocket or in your purse, and they go to probably a car out in the parking lot. Now, your keys don't go to every car out there. It would be cool, 
kind of go out there and be like, oh, look, a new car this week. I'll take that one. That would be fun. Um, but that's not really how it works, is it? Your keys go to your car, and the keys that you have go to the car that you possess, one that you own and that you have authority over. And so this is what Jesus has. He, has, he possesses the keys of death in Hades. He has authority over it. This is why we can... Um, Nothing is outside of his rule, which is why we read in Romans 8, nothing separates us from the love of God, not even death. Why? Because Jesus possesses the keys. There's nothing death can do, which is why we read in Philippians 1, where Paul says to live is Christ, what? To die is? Well, death is gain because he's not afraid of death, because he trusts his life in the one who owns death, has conquered death. Death is and does not need to be feared because our king rules over it. Now just think about how different that is than any other king. Any other king would say, well, I have dominion over my land. I have dominion over the things that I see. I have dominion over the things in my castle. But if someone was to die, the king would not say I have dominion over them anymore. His rule would be limited there. But we have our king who says, I have rule and authority over everything living and everything dead. I have conquered everything. Death and suffering does not have the last word. This is what C.S. Lewis says, again, referring to the Chronicles of Narnia. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Talking about the return of Aslan, the return of Jesus, our king. Now, isn't that good news? Like, that's our king. But is that the way it feels? Like as we go through the day, does it feel as though at every moment our king is ruling over death, that our king has conquered that? Do we remember that at all moments? I mean, if we look right now, if we looked throughout the world, we would see our brothers and sisters, especially in other countries, and our country is probably moving more this way, where to be a Christian is to be greatly persecuted. We have many brothers and sisters who are killed every day because they're believers in Jesus Christ. John tells us in 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. I just want you to think about what John is saying here. John, as he writes this letter, sees himself and the church as going through the tribulation, referring to the persecuting of the church. And we see this when we go into chapters 2 and 3. We have seven churches, and he's going to address these seven churches. Notice what he says. Here's a couple of things that we learned. The church of Smyrna is about to endure intense persecution for 10 days. The church of Pergamum is said to dwell where Satan's throne is. So, so just get this. In Pergamum, it's so wicked that they liken it to this must be where Satan lives himself. The church of Thyatira is struggling against false teachers. They have people within their church compared to Jezebel of the Old Testament. The church of Philadelphia is said to be in the presence of the synagogue of Satan. So literally, so here we have a place where we gather together as a church and we worship God. So they liken it. How wicked Philadelphia is, it's like there's people who gather just to worship Satan there. The synagogue of Satan is there. When referring to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, I want to vomit you out. 
They're worthless, meaning they have so compromised their message. They've adapted themselves to what the world looks like. They've diluted the gospel. And Jesus says, look, you're not hot. You're not cold. You're just worthless. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to vomit you out. Isn't that like what we see today? I mean, today as a church, are we not pressured to compromise on truth? Today, we have the message of homosexuality coming through the world. It's okay. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But what do we see in God's word? Know that there is something wrong with it. That's not how we were created to be. We saw this in regards to last week. We looked at how churches are compromising on God's word in appointing women elders. I encourage you, if that strikes you weird and you think that came out of no context, um, look at last week's sermon. Churches are compromising in many ways so they do not appear offensive to this world. They dilute the gospel. They say, well, maybe if we don't emphasize really the Bible, more people would like us. Each day we're faced with the question, you and I, will we stand strong in our faith or will we, or will we compromise? This is why we have the vision. Because yes, our king does reign on high, but we live in a world where there is great sin. And oftentimes, because of the sin, we forget that our king is reigning. But we need to remember that the world is not our king. That Jesus is our king. He's the one with all authority. And because of that, we don't need to fear persecution or suffering or death, which is everything the first century churches were going through and what the churches have gone through ever since. And the reason we don't need to fear them is why? Who holds the keys of death in Hades? Who holds it? Six people know the answer. Who holds the keys? There you go. See a little interaction. That's good. Making sure we're awake. This is why we have this vision. Now notice, each of the seven letters begins with a description of Jesus. Where does that description come from? You who know your Bibles will know this. Where does this description come from? Chapter 1 of the passage we just read. Jesus gives this vision so that the churches who are living in the tribulation, like you and us, who are suffering for being a Christian, would stand firm. The point of this is that we're to look at Jesus, and the more we behold our King, our Savior, through what? Through the Word, we will persevere in our faith. He's reminding us that we are, he's reminding us of our true citizenship. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. There we see that by faith God has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Look, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's good to be a citizen of the United States, right? It is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But our first citizenship is that of heaven with the Father, with the Son. And you have been made a priest within that kingdom. And as a priest, you not only worship God, but you also represent God to others. It's by standing firm on the testimony. It's by not compromising on the truth. The churches in in, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, churches today are tempted to compromise, are tempted to not uh, hold, hold the word of God. We've been given this vision that we would stand firm, that we would not compromise, that we would not dilute the message Because we have hope, the hope of our God, the hope of our King. And let's remember that suffering, that it's through suffering of Jesus that we've been saved. Jesus' suffering was not worthless, are they? I mean, it's 
through the cross. Jesus didn't go on vacation and then bring us salvation. He went to the cross and died, which results in our salvation. It's because of his death and resurrection. He holds the keys of death in Hades. It's because of that. And now as we persevere in the faith, and as many of us will suffer, do we need to fear? No. Because just as our king has gone forth and through suffering has provided salvation for all as we continue to walk and stand firm on the word of God, if suffering comes our way, we need not fear because we know God will use that as a means of testifying of the gospel to this world. Suffering is not worthless. What is good news here is that our God does not just use us when we're alive, but he can even use us in our death for his glory. If we die, he doesn't say, oh, I was about to use them. I was going to use them for such good things. I can't do it now. But even through suffering, even through death, he uses us for his glory. Do you know what this truth does? It frees us. It frees us from anxiety. It frees us from thinking that we need to control everything. It frees us from being wise according to the world as we grow in our understanding that jesus is the eternal king we're free to risk our lives to be missionaries to go to unreached people groups where there's great hostility that this truth frees us that we can share the gospel at our workplaces even when they say you can't share the gospel here this truth frees us to share the truth of the gospel with our neighborhoods and being willing and willing to risk our friendships or being willing being willing to be risked i'm saying that right as that crazy neighbor who just talks about the gospel all the time. This truth frees us to bring our Bibles to school and not need to fear the ridicule of either the teachers or other students. Because what we understand is that we're here to please our King and our God who reigns on high. I was listening to another pastor preach, and he was reminding, uh, he was reminding the church on how the Apostle Paul approached suffering. And it was kind of good, it was funny, and yet it was very true. So I, I share this with you. If Paul was arrested, and they said, Paul, we're going to kill you. He said, great, to die is gain. Fine, Paul, we'll let you live. Great, to live is Christ. If they said, good, Paul, you think that's funny? Well, then we'll just torture you. He would then reply, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond a comparison. And then so they'll say, well, we'll just put you in prison. And to which he would then reply, great, I'll praise God, sing to God, and convert all your prisoners and all your guards. That's how Paul approached suffering. That's how he lived in this life. And how did he do that? Because he knew who his king was. And he lived for the glory of God. And this is only possible when we behold our God through his written word. Look, John doesn't say, I had this vision. You too should go on a nature walk and find God. He says, right here in the word, we see who God is. Listen, there's many things in this world that attack our faith. There's things like death the death of loved ones, tragedies, persecutions that seek to weaken our hold on our faith. They'll, they all seek to distort the image of Jesus. They want to distort it to something that's unbiblical or through these experiences in our own sinful nature, we often are tempted to forget about Jesus and that he is God and that he does reign on high. This is why Paul gives us the message or this is why John gives us this message here in Revelation. He's reminding us 
of who Jesus truly is. We've been given this image to strengthen our faith that we would persevere as we wait for the return of Jesus. That's the point. That's why he gives it and then goes into the, the, the seven churches. It's already said it, and now it bears repeating. The way we understand this is in our Bibles. The world and culture will try to distract us from the true God. It's as we daily come to God's word, we're reminded who he is, who we are because of Christ, how we live. Our souls feed upon the word of God that then we would stand strong on each day that we live here in this world. It's as we gaze deeply into the vision that John has given us here and as into the rest of the word that the things of this world grow dim. Listen, when you're, when you're staring at the face of the lion, you're not really concerned with anything else, are you? You're captivated by the lion. That's what John's doing here for us. He's placed the lion of Judah before us and he's allowing us to gaze deeply into him. And as we do, yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's tribulation. And they do hurt. But what happens is that they no longer control us or paralyze us because we begin to look at everything through the vision of the lion of God, of Judah. We know that our king reigns. Listen, the one, who abo- the one whose Bible is worn well is the one who stands firm and perseveres to the end. I cannot encourage you enough to know your Bibles. This is how John communicates the vision of the glory of God. It's through the written word. And as we, as we come to the word of God, we daily come to God himself. This is why we stand here. We stand not just to stand, just to get a little exercise, but we stand when we read because we're simply saying, look, this is God's word. This comes with his authority. He speaks to it, speaks to us through his word that we would know him. So we stand to honor him out of our respect and fear of him. I encourage you to be in the word. Pick up Bible reading plans out in the foyer. Also, um, not only read the word by yourself, but it's good to read the word with others. It's good to read the word and be challenged by what God is doing in other people's lives, that maybe God will be challenging you in that way too. It's good to be prayed for by others as you go through the word of God. We'll go to the last point, and maybe the most comforting truth. Jesus is the one who strengthens and dwells with the churches. If you look at verse 13, we see Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. And verse 20, we're told the lampstands represent Jesus. You see the connection? Jesus is not just simply drinking in, in heaven, eating, and having forgotten about us. He's not saying, well, I did my part. Good luck. But rather, he's with his bride. He's with his body. He's amongst the churches. He walks in our midst. The reason we can persevere and stand in our faith is because he's with us, keeping us in the faith. Do you know that? Like that's why we stand firm, is because the Son of God is with us. We spent a whole series on elders. Elders are a great gift to the church, but, but we're mere men who, who seek to represent Jesus, but we're not perfect. We're not always with you. We don't always know how to respond perfectly to every situation. But there's a truth here in God's word that says there is one who is always with us, who always gives perfect counsel, who always perfectly strengthens the church, and that is Jesus. And the the way we're going to know that, the way that's going to continue to strengthen us, 
is through the word of God. Know that Jesus is with us. As we gather today, the spirit of Jesus is with us, strengthening us right now through the word of God. So as we leave here today, you do not leave the same. You know that, right? Because Jesus takes this word and he uses it in your life and he's strengthening your faith right now. Now you, you could reject that, but he's strengthening you right now so that as we leave, as we go into the world, would be different and that our faith would be stronger because of him. And that we'd be willing to stand firm and we'd be willing to suffer because we know who our king is. This is the same truth that we read at the end of Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, right? Verse 20, and lo and behold, I am with you always to the what? To the very end of the age. Jesus says, I will never, ever leave you. Let that, let that truth comfort you. Jesus doesn't say, good luck in the tribulation. I'll be at the end waiting for you. He saves us, and now he's with the churches, persevering us in our faith so that we will make it to the end and spend eternity with him in the new heavens and new earth. So we can stand firm. We can stand firm together, and as we leave here today, you can stand firm in your faith. Not because of how strong you are. The Bible's not looking back and saying, you're really strong. God's so lucky to have you on his team. Rather, you can stand firm because the presence of God is in you, with you, strengthening you by the word of God. So you can stand firm at home. You can stand firm at your workplace. You can stand firm at school. We are never alone as the people of God. The God who fills all of creation, who is infinite, is with you and me in our everyday lives. This is why we pray, because he hears us, and he loves to hear our prayers. This is why we read our Bibles, because every time we read the Bible, we know his spirit is with us, in us, giving us understanding and wisdom. And I know there's hard parts, right? There's hard parts of the Bible, and you're kind of like, spirit, I could use a little extra right now. Like, I get that, but he's with us, strengthening us and giving us understanding. This is why we can stand strong in the world, because Jesus is our God, he is our king, he is the glory of God, and he will never leave us. Let's pray. Father, Father, you are God. We thank you for your son, your son, who is your glory. God, we thank you for the vision that we have been given today. And Lord, I pray that as we have been here and as we have looked at this vision, I pray that we are comforted. I pray that we are encouraged. I pray that we are convicted in areas that we have not been living as though you are king. And Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we would be resolved all the more because of your spirit in us to be able to persevere in our faith. Not because of our strength, but because you are with us. Because when you saved us, you sealed us with your spirit and your spirit daily abides in us. God, I pray that you would increase our thirst and hunger for your word. That daily we would, we would satisfy our souls upon your word. That we would know you. And that as we grow in our knowledge of you, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. God, we thank you that you are God. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are the conquering God, our King. And God, we thank you that you are with us. May we never forget that truth. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You can stay standing. We have one question. It says, are most wars started by religion? Um, what should I say to that?
It's a good question. I actually have a lot of thoughts going through my head about that, and I don't know that I am prepared to give the best answer to that at this moment. Uh, so I, I want to say I'll address that next week. But I will say beliefs matter. Beliefs do matter, and no matter, it is because of convictions that there are wars. And I would say there are many wars that have taken place because of ungodly, unbiblical views of God. A distorted view of God has led to much war. So I would say there is a lot, but the fact that there's war doesn't mean that there's not a God. So that, that argument wouldn't really be logical. So I want to think more about that, uh, but that's a really good question. And I know that there are many who have used that type of argument to say, well, religion causes war, so we just shouldn't believe in God. Um, but actually, the, the opposite is very true. People who deny God have created many wars. In fact, again, I'm not prepared to give the statistics, but there's a lot of statistics that show the great weight of wars have been fought largely on unbiblical views of God. In fact, views of a non-God, so on more of an atheistic position. So that's a good question. I'll think more about it. I'll bring, hopefully, a better answer uh, next week. Uh, so... Let me pray as we close, and then we'll be led in one last song. Father, we we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are God. And that, God, there are wars today. And there are pains, and there are sufferings, and there's tribulation today. And, Lord, even as we go out of this room today, we're going to be faced with much of that. We're going to be faced with sufferings in this world, sufferings that come into our life. We're going to be faced with will will we compromise on the gospel, will we stand firm? Lord, I pray that we continue to come back to the vision that you have given us in your word, that you are king, and you have conquered sin, death, and Satan. You hold the keys of death and Hades. May we not fear standing firm on our faith. May we not be worried what the world will say or do, for in fact, God, your Bible shows that even when your church is persecuted, it grows greatly, and you are greatly glorified, so may we not think that we must be at the center of society and that everything around us must be in great peace. For God, you use all things for your glory. And God, may we know that there is a day coming that you are returning. There is a day coming where your believers, your church, your bride, your body will be with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. And at that moment, there will never be sin. There will never be pain. There will never be suffering. And there will be no more tribulation. And may we look greatly forward to that day. Your kingdom come. In your name, Jesus. Amen.